the number, as as uh, you know, David put it, is very important. Yes. Okay. So for Wall Street, uh, the earnings number is so important. Billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, mm-hmm. are getting traded every day uh-huh. on the number. You are now connected with Enclave for Entrepreneurs at O'Hare International Airport in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Enclave O'Hare, the local to global learning and earning center for entrepreneurs and their influencers. In April 2019, we had the pleasure of hearing from subject matter expert Sridhar Ramamurti, PhD, on identifying and neutralizing fraudsters. Shri is uniquely qualified with a blended academic practitioner background with over 35 years of experience in academia, auditing, and consulting. However, what truly sets Shri apart is his PhD in quantitative psychology. Listen in as Shri shares his point of view of fraud as an accountant, professor, and psychologist. My name is Sri Ramurthy. I'm currently an associate professor of accounting at the University of Dayton. I uh, used to be at Kennesaw State University uh, prior to coming to Dayton in 2017. And prior to that, I was up for almost 15 years in professional practice in accounting with firms like Arthur Anderson, Ernst & Young, and Grant Thornton. Yeah. And you've got about a billion acronyms after your name, so... <laughs> well, my my wife has told me that if that allegation is ever put against me, I should just say, well, didn't you know I was a professional test taker? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Successful one at that, right? So tonight, um, you know, we talked all about um, finding fraudsters and fraud within business and in particular how entrepreneurs can identify that when they're out in, in the business world. And the definition really of, of fraud and what does that mean? Because I think a lot of people when they think fraud, they think of these grandiose, you know, uh, Enron, which of course, obviously everybody's familiar with, or, you know, people stealing millions and millions of dollars. But I think what was interesting to to learn about is kind of that more of the micro things that happen on a daily basis that everybody kind of does that is fraud. Can you talk about that a little bit? So, uh, you know, the very generic thing is fraud is involved whenever there is a violation of trust. Mm-hmm. So, uh, at a basic level, if a young woman on campus uh, stood this so-called uh, fellow who fancied her, and he stood him up on a date, she actually committed fraud on that guy. Mm-hmm. Because she violated his trust. He's sitting there at Starbucks waiting for her. She never showed up. Mm-hmm. That's fraud. And he was under the pretense that uh, no, they no, were he, meeting. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Right? He's expecting that the meeting will happen, mm-hmm. but it never did mm-hmm. because one party failed to show up. Mm-hmm. So those kind of no-shows are actually fraud. Yeah. Because you're violating somebody's trust. You made a commitment, and then you don't keep your word. Mm-hmm. That's fraud. Yeah. Okay, at, at a basic level. Now, uh, a technical uh, but a very reasonably understood definition of fraud might be uh, from the ACFE, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, and they have what is called the fraud tree. The fraud tree has three major branches. Uh, One is asset 
misappropriation where whether it's cash, whether it's, you know, things of value that are stolen. Uh, so that would be fraud. Mm-hmm. And then you have corruption. And that includes, you know, kickbacks and, you know, uh, bribes and all kinds of things. And sometimes, of course, it's illegal too because we have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the U.S. There's the U.K. Bribery Act of 2010. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, there are different jurisdictions with laws against this. So corruption, and one big area within corruption is conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. So whenever you have a conflict of interest, uh, that can lead very quickly to, to fraud and mm-hmm. fraud allegations. The Enron and that kind of stuff that we talk about, that is a third category called financial statement or fraud, fraudulent statements in general. Mm-hmm. So any statement on which you are putting down information that is erroneous, untrue, and you're making somebody who's reading that statement believe that it is true, that's fraud. Right. Because again, you're you're taking them in, you know, by... by. So those are three major categories. Uh, increasingly, cyber fraud has sure. become, you know, a big thing. This is not on the ACFE's fraud tree, but I'm sure they recognize that, you know, uh, cyber is into everything. Mm-hmm. So when you color you know, any kind of description of fraud with the technology import, and then you have a maybe a new kind of fraud or a, or a you know, variation on the theme, so mm-hmm. to speak. So, right, right. So, so this is a very helpful way to understand. So you have uh, basically asset misappropriation, you have corruption and conflicts of interest, you have fraudulent statements, and you have cyber fraud. Right. At Enclave, we're, we're the main main focus is, is entrepreneurs and their influencers, and certainly accountants are, are you know, in that category of influencers, right? Um, and, you know, in my experience, a lot of entrepreneurs tend to have a technical skill, um, and they have the bravery to go out and do this on their own. So they might not necessarily um, have that natural ability to identify in people, and, and what we talked about tonight was a lot about those characters of fraud. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about what we chatted about tonight with that? So, uh, you know, basically we, uh, Barry Epstein and I have written a couple of articles now in the CPA journal, and uh, we start with this kind of basic assumption, uh, which is kind of a nice uh, um, uh, soundbite. This is from Joe Kolitar, our, our, our colleague, where he says, numbers never came about all by themselves. Right. Some human being created a number. Uh-huh. And so students, as well as grown-ups, entrepreneurs, need to be informed that just because you see some numbers on a printed page doesn't mean it's accurate. Mm-hmm. You've got to start thinking about who created the set of numbers. What were his or her motivations? What drove him to report the kind of numbers with the level of detail that you're seeing? Mm-hmm. And suddenly you find yourself in the domain of psychology. Right. Because you're thinking about their motives. Right. You know, you're not, you're not looking at the output. Whereas most accountants have been taught that you don't question people's motives. You just assume mm-hmm. that you are getting the right information. And then it's just a question of checking the technical accuracy of the calculations, that actually is not all that important. Mm-hmm. What is more important is the underlying data, because as I like to 
say to my students, you know, and this is from computer science, the idea that you have garbage in, garbage out, right? So the underlying data is itself compromised. No amount of use of sophisticated statistical and other analyses can cure the underlying deficiencies in the data. Those, those deficiencies are going to remain. And sophisticated use of analytics is probably going to make it worse, you know, because you're assuming it's correct when it's not. Right. And I can't do any better than Mark Twain mm-hmm. on these kind of things. So he said, it ain't what you don't know that kills you. What kills you is what you think you know that ain't so. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's the, that's the underlying thing. Yeah. So, uh, so we basically talk about normal personalities, and then we talk about abnormal or deviant personalities. The fraud triangle, which is the received wisdom in our profession, it's part of our standards. Uh, it came from Professor Donald Cressy uh, of uh, the University of Santa Barbara in California. Talks about three vertices, the triangle. So you have opportunity at the top. You have perceived incentive or pressure mm-hmm. on the second uh, vertex. And the third vertex is rationalization. Mm-hmm. And because these are basically good people doing bad things, mm-hmm. we are trying to explain what are the contextual factors that drove them to behave dishonestly or do something that was unethical, illegal, immoral, fraudulent, you know, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And that's basically explained by the fraud triangle. Mm-hmm. Because again, as I said, the basic assumption is these are good people doing bad things. Right. When we start looking at the dark triad literature, we are asking a different question. We are asking, why do bad people do bad things? That's that question. Mm-hmm. And it's my, uh, you know, I, I actually defer to David on this one, but it's my belief it's actually some of the basic assumptions of Judeo-Christian history that we have in the United States that has caused us not to look at, at the question, why do bad people do bad things? Why? Because Judeo-Christian theology believes in the essential redemption of every human being. You do not want to declare any human being as being incurably or incorrigibly bad. You don't want to say that. You want to always, and America as a country is known to be a land of second chances. See the best in people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And that's why I think that kind of fraud model has succeeded so fabulously. Yeah. But now we're realizing, well, you know, there are perhaps some of these doctrine types who fundamentally lack things that we assume everybody has. Like what? Like a conscience. <laughs> what, if, what if they don't have a conscience? Yeah, compassion. Yeah. Right. What, what are you going to tell them? Tell me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I think we just call them members of the dark triad. Right. And, and to be very straight with you, they're not good people. Right. Th- yeah. That's where I'm coming down. Yeah. And so when you go to the dark triad, which is the narcissists, the Machiavellians, and the psychopaths, then we have the situation uh, where the fraud triangle model with its assumptions 
of the basic goodness, you know, of of human beings, mm-hmm. it just completely breaks down. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't apply. Right. In that case, right. and now this came about partly also because it turns out that Edwin Sutherland, uh, you know, the American Sociological Association president who gave us the term white collar crime, mm-hmm. it seems he had a very strong aversion to using personality as an explanation for, uh, you know, fraudulent behavior. He said that's not true. Yeah. And because Donald Cressy was his student, I guess he pretty much lived up to his advisor's expectations and he too jettisoned that particular viewpoint. And that's how we are here today in a situation where the fraud triangle model Mm -hmm. has been accepted as the gospel truth and the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners actually peddles the fraud triangle as though it is the gospel truth. Right. Still, even today. Yeah. And so when Barry Epstein and I wrote uh, our article, it was a little bit of an earthquake in the in, in the profession. Oh, I believe it. Because people opened their minds and they said, wait a minute here, maybe, maybe the collaboration between a Hindu and a Jew is not so bad after all. So, <laughs> so. And one of the... the Things about Enclave, right? Is that as as we sit here and you and you share this, and and it is fascinating, and and, and we can feel your passion. Um, it's all about collaborating, and and what you know, John Dallas, and and the term around here is colliding. So while we're sitting here having this conversation with you, we have Dr. David Morrison who can't help himself but come in and join the conversation. So I'm I excited. To to, I'm excited yeah, to hear I, I, what your 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 point is on this. I have a couple questions for you, Shree. Okay. Can you point to Scott? Scott. Can you point to Scott Brown? Yeah. Can you point to the number two? Can you point to love? Can you point to beauty? Okay. No, you can't because it's an abstraction. Right. Love, beauty, the number two is an abstraction. Sure. So all these professionals, whether they're physicians or uh, accountants, have been trained that these numbers are real. They're not. They're an abstraction. Right. And and for that reason, they move out of touch with reality. Yeah. So we talk in theories and we talk in concepts, and that can take us so far. Yeah. But that idea of ambiguity is really important. How well can we tolerate? How well can we live with ambiguity? One of the most important measurements we have when we evaluate executives is their tolerance of ambiguity. Yeah. How accurate, how clear, how consistent do their perceptions remain in the presence of ambiguity? And if they're uncomfortable with it, they often are not as successful as they might be. So here's my disagreement with you, Dr. Shri, Dr. Sridhar. I have a concern that if we label people as good and bad, we're starting to move away from what the real world is. I do believe that there are good and bad actions. So psychiatrists often get accused of amoralism or, you know, you're, you're just judging no matter what the person does, you give them an out. And historically, that's not true. Uh, one of my father's mentors was Carl Minninger, and he wrote the book, What Became of, of Sin. Sin. What Became right. of Sin, exactly right. With the idea being that there are things you can do that harm other human beings at their core, at their humanistic core. But um, I, I am always concerned when people start to get labeled as good or bad. I mean, my fundamental question as we look at fraud is why do people do bad things? Uh-huh. It's not good or bad people. It's just why do people do bad things? Well, and I, to, to 
kind of continue on from my understanding of your point that you just made in regards to can we sit down with somebody who is let's just say a CFO is purely financially driven and minded right. and say hey do you understand that those numbers don't really exist it's just a result of you know human behavior and the things that we're doing today right, right. amongst each other and if they're incapable of removing themselves from that that's the stuff that we talk about here where we go oh man that can get uncomfortable pretty quickly very fast because we're shaking their their recent, their most recent and 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 uh, closely held reality from their perception of it that. rocks them to the core. It, right, it's like uh, you take a child who really believes Santa exists and tell him he doesn't. That's terrifying, or 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 that the elf on the shelf really is not able to right? see <laughs> right? everything they do. Yeah, but those numbers have been their religion. They are the things that they search for. They are the answers at the back of the book. Yes. They're the sign that they're good. Right. They're the fact that they're now moving on to the next level. They got the numbers that's required to be good. Yeah. So to talk about numbers as not being real or that they might not be as real as you think they are is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And and that's what you're facing. That's what you're seeing in, in right now, Scott, in your career, I think, is you're working to try to move the accounting field out of the, this is the other point I wanted to make for all three of us, but yeah. is those professionals that she described that are stuck in the concrete and are more fearful, they're going to be replaced by artificial intelligence. Uh, there you go. Wonderful. Oh, that, that, that is totally correct. Yeah. In fact, uh, yeah, they, they are going to be completely commoditized, to use your, yeah. uh, because you, you actually have machines that will not only do it faster, better, and cheaper. Right. Why do I want this guy? Tell right. Me. Yeah. If, if that's all he's got for me, and I can do it faster, better, and cheaper, right? Why would I want him? Yeah. I want to use AI. Well, and and you know to double down on this even more so, you know the term advisory, right? Which is where we're all shifting to. Well, what is part of advisory? It's making sure that you're giving that good quality advice, and exactly. part of that is, am I doing the right thing? Is yeah, this exactly. the right thing for the client? Is maybe one of these folks that's an influencer of theirs giving them some good advice, but it's not holistic. Right. So it's not that it, in from that definition, it might not be the best thing for them, and that's the ambiguity that you guys are speaking of, and that's what makes folks that are in the accounting or the financial f field very uncomfortable very quickly because it is it's not concrete. It's not a for sure yes, right. black or white type thing. Right, right, right. So let me let me take a, a kind of a higher level though. You know, I, I tried to do this. You know, looking at things from a kind of a different angle. So the role of the accountant though is very critical. And let me tell you in what sense. So the number, as as uh, you know, David put it, is very important. Yes. Okay. So for Wall Street. Uh, the earnings number is so important, billions of dollars, trillions of dollars mm -hmm. are getting traded every day uh -huh. on the number. Right. And it's one number, right? Whatever right. the earnings. Okay? So given that there's a whole infrastructure of professionals around us producing that number, mm -hmm. when you start attacking them, <laughs> They get defensive. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Right. Because this is how they've been doing it for a long time. Right. And you're saying, okay. So, but what is that number doing? To me, that number is basically negotiating the accountabilities across a diverse set of stakeholders. Yeah. Let's, let's try to understand what I'm trying to say here, okay? Yes. So, 
for every business, there are all kinds of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And not all stakeholders are shooting for the same goal. Right. Okay. Some are shooting for something else. And so there could be conflicts here. Right. The one neutral party, the truth teller in all this, is the accountant. Yes. Okay? Yeah. So by being the truth teller and being objective and not looking out for the creditor or not, you know, uh, looking out for the shareholder. They don't have that okay. bias. Exactly. Right. We have a name for that in accounting. We call that neutrality. Right. That an accountant is enjoined to act with neutrality as the clarion call. Mm -hmm. That's the defining basis for their work. Trusted advisor. There you go. Because right. the minute I am not seen to be an honest broker of information, my accounting is finished. Mm -hmm. I, I lose all my reputation. It's right. gone. It's gone. Right. So to me, this neutrality, objectivity, etc., is very important. And all of that ultimately rests on the number. And because I'm using that number to negotiate these accountabilities across different stakeholders, as I said, it's an indispensable, it's a very, very important role mm -hmm. that accounts are playing. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's the job of society, though, and the academy, you know, whatever, people who think hard about these kind of issues, to make sure that the education of an accountant is broad enough that they are able to appreciate the aesthetics and the value of different disciplines mm -hmm. and not just think that a number, which is just a unidimensional measure mm -hmm. of something, can actually do the job. Right. So they should be taught to question that particular assumption, which is what people like David do, you know, just masterfully. They, they question that. How can this single dimensional measure, you know, reflect all the multiple dimensions of the world mm -hmm. that we try to capture in just one number? Come on. And and to give numbers a break, I came down pretty hard <laughs> on numbers, right? But if you look at the history of numbers, right? I mean, yep. that that's how we got um, uh, around the world with Columbus, or that's how we got to the moon, or that's how we conquered polio or smallpox. Right. Numbers, people working out models in their head and then proving it in the lab. So one of the groups I worked with is the financial division of uh, Motorola. And, and, and my role was really to help them work better interpersonally and, and to grow and be strong as a team. And I remember there was one time where I was like, okay, I can get my arms around that. They literally had to go down to their plant in Ogales, Mexico, and count the number of units. And I thought, okay, now there's a number I can wrap my arms around because <laughs> they are literally going down there. They're going to count how many Razor phones or whatever it was yeah. are sitting there on the production line and the other pieces of equipment. And I can picture that. I can go down and imagine that they're counting 100 or 500 parts. Yeah. Some of these other numbers get a little bit more abstract and, and mushy. And that's where I get anxious because people do get very passionate about these numbers as if they are as real as this bottle that I can pick up. So we're both in some ways closet philosophers, right? I right. mean, the, the psychiatrist is working hopefully to figure out the philosophy of the person. And the relationship of the person with the therapist. What is the meaning to you? Sure. Why does this matter? Why are the emotions so strong? Uh -huh. You know that that's that's the mission of the, of the of the psychiatrist. So when they start to talk and explore their world, you want them to be as realistic as possible. So we're taught there are serious concrete things. And what does it mean to be concrete? 
I can feel it, I can touch it, I can taste it, I can hear it. Somehow it's getting to my senses. It's a real thing. Numbers, abstract concepts, they don't do that. Yeah. And that's really important, I think, for the people you're working with, for the people that we advise, because it's that passion and it's and, and it can be about that I'm right, but it can also be about in the in the level of the CFO, don't you doubt me. Right. Don't you doubt me. Yeah. Because uh, that's when the froster can move can move in. Right. You do this because I said so. Like like the uh, what's the rationale? SS is the rationale. The, the, right, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. The, well, but now what David is talking about is that something very interesting happens when you start bringing power into right. all this, exactly. which is what we just we mentioned, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. When power enters the equation. Even something that's a lie can actually be passed off as the truth. Right. Sure. Because it's 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 coming from you know the mouth of somebody who has power. The Queen of England says something, even if it's a bald-faced lie. Hey, it's the Queen who said it. I, I think I think if we you know learn anything about just this topic, just in general, right? And and the conversation that we had upstairs, and then and the the conversation that we've had here just now is that talk about a dynamic thing with a lot of different viewpoints on it and it's ever changing like you guys have mentioned before so my my last question to kind of put a yeah, bow yeah, yeah, on this yeah, whole yeah. thing yeah. here is for the folks that are listening whether they be an influencer they be an actual entrepreneur if if I was you know one of those folks and I just said hey give me one piece of advice from from avoiding fraud detecting it whatever piece of advice you think is the most important what would you say to them well it's a tone from the top it's culture and you need to show a commitment to ethics and integrity in everything that you do. And you need to pick, you know, employees, you know, everybody very, very carefully. Take time, you know. I mean, uh, th there was one company I knew in Chicago where they would have, it seems, as many as eight interviews per candidate. Wow. Eight. And when I talked to that gentleman, I said, well, what are you doing? Don't you think that sounds a little too inefficient? He says, well, Sri, actually, the first two interviews are just kicking the tires to make sure that everything on their resume is correct. The remaining six interviews is to figure out whether they are a person of integrity that we can include in our company. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. It was a great answer. And, you know, and he said... It's very evident to us that whatever we're doing, we're doing right because after those eight interviews, okay, I concede, the process is kind of slow and protracted, but you know what? We've never had issues about our employees. All stayed with us. We haven't had frauds or anything like that. And what that leads me to believe is people who are hiring quickly are repenting at leisure because those hires aren't that great. And so when there is a fraud, I think they are actually ending up paying far more money than the eight interviews that could have saved their butt. Sure. Cost so of turnover, certainly, yeah. That's what, that's what he was saying. So he's saying you might think that eight interviews maybe is overkill, but in the larger scheme of things, it's not. Right. It's actually justified. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank Appreciate you. It. Yeah. 
If anything is clear about avoiding fraud in the business world, it's that identifying fraudsters is ever-changing and complex. Numbers are only as good as the ethical standards of the individuals who compile them. Entrepreneurs, influencers, key employees and stakeholders can all help reduce fraud by instilling a culture of accuracy and honesty. Join us on the third Wednesday of every month for a masterclass in applied metacognition at Enclave O'Hare. For more information, please visit enclaveforentrepreneurs.com.